1: Hello again, everyone, as we continue on this exciting journey towards a Christian vision of a perfectly good God who's saving us all by grace. As we get into this episode, I need to make a quick correction. In the last episode, I encouraged you to read chapter 3 in Thomas Talbot's book, The Inescapable Love of God. However, it was really chapter 4, which I should have directed you towards. Not that big a difference. But I wanted to clear it up because it's chapter 4 in The Inescapable Love of God, where Talbot presents his three pictures of God in Western theology. Talbot does this by using a set of three inconsistent propositions Christians hold about God. Simplified, they are 1. God wants to save all. 2. God can save all God wants to save. And 3. Some will not be saved. Since all three of these can't be affirmed without creating a logical conflict, this yields three Christian pictures of God. A God who wants to save all, but is not able to save all God wants to save. A God who is able to save all God wants to save, but does not want to save all. And finally, a God who wants to save all, and is able to save all God wants to save. The way Talbot works through his three Christian pictures of God inspired me to see if I could use a similar exercise to present three Christian pictures of grace. And so what I did was, by following Talbot's example, create my own set of three inconsistent propositions about grace, which Christians have affirmed, yet which can't all logically be affirmed at the same time, thereby yielding three different pictures of grace. My three inconsistent propositions about grace are 1. Grace alone saves 2. Grace goes to all and 3. Some will never be saved All three of these propositions have been strongly affirmed over the history of Christianity but they cannot all be affirmed without creating a logical conflict. The way we choose to eliminate one of them shows us what approach to grace we have. To help us easily differentiate between these three approaches to grace, I give each one a label. To the one where grace goes to all and some will not be saved, I give the label the transactional approach. To the one where grace alone saves and where some will not be saved, I give the label the exclusive approach. And to the one where grace alone saves, and where grace goes to all, I give the label the inclusive approach. In today's episode, we'll look more closely at the transactional approach, where grace goes to all, but some will not be saved. The idea of calling this approach to grace transactional occurred to me when I was listening to an episode of Rob Bell's podcast, The Robcast, where he was talking about how at his events, people kept coming up to him asking him different versions of the same burning question, which is, what do I need to do in order to be sure I'm saved? And Rob's theory was that this was probably rooted in transactionalism. Here's how Rob described transactionalism in that podcast, edited just a little bit for clarity, but pretty close to word for word. Rob said, Transactionalism is the belief, is the understanding. If you do A, then God will do B. Transactionalism is, if you would just do this, then the universe, love, the divine, God, will then do something because you did something. Transactionalism, for many people, is how they understand spirituality, how they understand religion, how they understand how the thing works. It's... You just have to do this. It's just tell me what I need to do and then I'll do it and hopefully that will get me the points, that will get me the favor, that will earn me the thing that I'm desperately seeking here. Now, transactionalism is lethal because what it does is it loads your heart down with a creeping, ambiguous anxiety that you're the issue. And if you would just do X, then favor would kick in, blessing, abundance, whatever it is that people have been told would just kick in. But, in Jesus' parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, they don't do anything. At the core of each of these stories is trust that the thing you are desperately searching for is already yours. You already belong. It is already yours. The thing you are pursuing, you already possess. The son cannot not belong to the father. The sheep cannot not belong to the shepherd. The coin cannot not belong to the woman. Belonging is the natural state, and so transactionalism is a fundamentally different posture to life than trust, which is an announcement of what is already true about you. You're already at the party. That's from episode 157 of Rob Bell's podcast entitled Alternative Wisdom Part 6, Sheep, Sons, and Coins. And when I was listening to that episode of Rob Bell's podcast, it came to me that that was the word I was looking for to describe this way of thinking about grace. Transactional. Because that word transactional captures the calculating kind of feel that it gives to grace when grace becomes one part of a spiritual transaction where salvation is on the line and where if you can't get your part done, then you're done and you are not included You are excluded forever. In transactionalism, grace is God's way of giving you just part of what you need in order to be ultimately included, in order to really belong. The grace part that God gives you is crucial because you can't get this grace part on your own, and you can't be eternally included without it either. But the grace part of salvation is just that, part of salvation. And you are not sure exactly how big a part it really is. And you're also not sure whether or not the part you add to the grace part will add up enough for you to get the salvation package because it all has to add up or else. Now, one way that transactional Christianity has sought to reduce this salvation anxiety is to teach the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And that seems to have a calming effect as long as everyone is acting saved. But if somebody gets saved, but then stops acting saved, it's wondered if they were ever saved in the first place. So what the doctrine ends up practically becoming is, once saved, always saved, as long as you're acting saved. And then there are others in the transactional approach who don't believe once saved, always saved. For them, salvation is always on the line. They believe you can really be saved, but then backslide and really lose your salvation, which means needing to get saved all over again. And then in some forms of transactional Christianity, there are those who insist that in order to be saved, you need to do more than believe and have faith. You also need to be baptized in a certain way and believe certain doctrines in a certain way and perhaps even be able to speak in tongues in a certain way in order to be sure you are saved. But even then, there's still always the anxiety that you will lose your fire about your salvation and become lukewarm and backslide, or make a doctrinal mistake. And add to all of this the ominous age of accountability. Those who practice some form of transactional spirituality give an exemption to infants, since they are not capable of making the salvation transaction. But there is some point at which these infants will become responsible for their salvation and they will need to be adding their part to the grace part so that they can end up having a successful salvation transaction. This age of accountability is usually said to happen right around the beginning of puberty. And so for obvious reasons, the age of accountability can induce tremendous fear and anxiety and even terror. For an excellent description of these problems, I recommend Boyd Purcell's book, Spiritual Terrorism, Spiritual Abuse from the Womb to the Tomb. And that's not the end of the problems for the transactional approach. Because if we take this transactional approach to grace, we will have scriptural problems to deal with as well. Because if we say that some are lost forever because they did not add enough of their part to the grace part, then what do we do about Lamentations 3.31, which says that God does not cast off anyone forever? And what about where Ezekiel talks about God restoring Sodom? If God can restore even the most evil city, couldn't God restore even the most evil person? And what about that passage from Second Chronicles, where God is described as the one who does not keep an outcast banished forever? And what about In Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus compares justice to somebody being put in prison until they pay the last penny, well, if they can't ever pay the last penny because they are in hell forever, then how is justice ever served? And then there are some scriptural problems which have to do with sovereignty for us to consider. Because if it is the case that God wants all to be saved, which the transactional approach affirms, Then we have to wonder why all are not going to be saved if God wants all to be saved. Why is God defeated in God's own will to save all? As we covered in episode 6 on the sovereignty of God, according to scripture, isn't God the one whom no one is able to withstand? The one who does whatever God pleases? The one whose purposes, and not the purposes of human minds, are the ones will be established? And if it's God's purposes which will be established, and not the plans of our minds, then how can our minds' plans defeat God's plans? And isn't it the case that no purpose of God may be thwarted, and that God is the one who declares the end from the beginning, as we read in Isaiah 46.10? So isn't any decision we make a decision God already knows we will make? But then how could we make any other decision than the ones we make in a creation where God knows we will make them from the beginning? And isn't God the one for whom nothing is too hard and for whom all things are possible? And isn't God the one who works everything in conformity with the purpose of His will? So if God wants to save all, and if saving all conforms with God's will, then how do we explain why God's will doesn't happen? All of the scriptures which contain these declarations end up becoming real problem scriptures for the transactional approach to have to deal with. And we haven't even gotten to the most fundamental problem of all, and that problem has to do with the goodness of God. Because if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and makes a creation in which grace only completes part of salvation and where some or many will not be saved, then God knew all of this was going to happen from the beginning and went ahead with creation anyway. And that means the eternal damnation of the lost was known at the beginning of creation, and God went ahead with creation knowing full well that the lost would never be saved. And this hopeless situation ends up subtracting from the goodness of God, because God, being all-knowing and all-powerful, is ultimately the first cause of everything that will ever happen in God's creation. And connected with all of this is also the problem of what happens to those people who are lost forever. If their destiny is to be doomed to a state of eternal torment, this poses an absolutely overwhelming threat to the goodness of God, because how could God be good and torment people forever for failing in a creation where their failure was foreknown and therefore inescapable? And if God just annihilates them or lets them annihilate themselves by devolving into some kind of post human creature, or by going into total non-existence, this doesn't do much to solve the problem, because if all are not saved, then what about the people who love them in this life, and who will be bereft that they will not be with them in eternity? And so the transactional approach in its various manifestations ends up being fraught with logical problems and scriptural problems, and makes it difficult, if not impossible, to defend the goodness of God. But it's understandable that none of this seems that troubling or even that immediately apparent to most Christians who are involved in transactional Christianity because these problems are simply not brought up in churches where transactional spirituality is taught and that happens to be the majority of churches. And in those churches, if you challenge their particular transactional approach to grace by bringing up these problems, it might just be assumed that you don't believe the Bible and that you're not really a Christian and that you're probably among those who will not be saved. It turns out that one of the fastest ways to get to an eternal hell is to question its existence. And so there are lots of people in the world right now who have just given up on Christianity because of all of this. It doesn't feel very much like love to them, and the God they are presented with doesn't seem good to them either. And when they leave all of that behind, they are under the impression that they have left Christianity behind as well. And so one of the main purposes of my book and of this podcast is to let those folks know that leaving behind a transactional form of Christianity does not mean that they have left behind all of Christianity. Because fortunately, there is a non-transactional and inclusive approach to Christianity which we can see in the Bible, which was articulated by early church fathers, and which is very possible to practice today. But before we end our thinking about the transactional approach, we do need to note that it does have its strengths. There's a reason it is the dominant form of Christianity in the world today. It teaches that God does want all people to be saved, and there are many scriptures which affirm that God does seem to want all to be saved. It teaches that some will not be saved, which is understandable, because there certainly are some scriptures which seem to suggest that some will be lost especially the way these passages are commonly translated in most popular current translations of the Bible. And it must be admitted that for some people, it is a comfort to think that the people who have wounded them in this lifetime will be headed for an eternity of torment in hell, or at least towards annihilation, so that they don't get to experience heaven. As a matter of fact, heaven would be kind of ruined for them if they were there. So an eternal hell is actually not a problem for lots of people. It's actually more of a feature which they think is actually necessary for the worst among us. As a matter of fact, they would think it unfair for God to forgive and reconcile with certain notorious sinners, no matter how long they suffered or how repentant they became. And transactionalism also has the attraction of putting us in the driver's seat when it comes to our salvation. After all, all we have to do to be saved is to do certain things. Now, those things vary depending on who you talk to, but the basic idea remains that salvation seems achievable when it is presented most of the time in the transactional approach. And I also think that the transactional approach makes sense to our modern way of thinking that we are the ones who are finally in charge of our own destiny. Especially in the United States of America, it seems to go along with our ideas of freedom and self-determination. And so God, in order to be good, must be on the side of liberty and must give us the freedom to determine our own destiny, even if we decide to doom ourselves. Because if God doesn't allow us to doom ourselves, then God would be taking away our free will, which would make God a dictator, which would be a bad thing. And so, rather ironically, Some would charge God with not being all good if God eventually does save all. The transactional approach also fits in with capitalism and the idea of commodifying things in the modern world. It just makes sense that salvation would be something else that we earn in life if we do things the right way, and then that heaven would be the reward that we would get because we earned it by doing it the right way. And it would also explain why some don't make it to heaven, because they didn't do it the right way. And further, this transactional way of thinking about Christianity is very dominant. Most Christianity in the world is practiced this way in one form or another. So how could it be that the most dominant way that Christianity is practiced, after all of these years, is not right? The transactional approach has been around for an awful long time, so it has the weight of tradition behind it. Since I am in the Protestant world, I tend to think of it historically as Arminian theology because it was Jacob Arminius in the Protestant Reformation who first really articulated it. And so today, if you look up Arminian theology, you will find a history going back over 500 years there. And the Protestants who formulated this free will Arminian transactional kind of Christianity saw that what they were doing was not out of line with some early church fathers and also some Catholic theologians at the time as well, although they differed with them on other matters. I sometimes call this approach the transactional Arminian approach because of this connection with Jacob Arminius, spelled A-R-M-I-N-I-U-S, if you want to look him up. And so for me, the label Arminian is another way of describing any Christian theology with a transactional understanding of grace, where the grace part God gives everyone doesn't actually secure all of salvation for anyone, and therefore salvation is not by grace alone. So, there's lots of history and tradition behind the transactional Arminian approach. We might say it's got a lot of credibility, while on the other hand, the inclusive Christian universalist approach suffers from a lack of credibility. And this lack of credibility happened because, especially in Western Christianity, the idea that God would ultimately save all became tangled up in a very controversial and controverted heresy trial in the 6th century. And after that time, any Christian who associated themselves with the idea that God would ultimately save all human beings had to be very circumspect and very careful. Since the idea that God will ultimately save all became somewhat associated with heresy, even if it was unfair, That taint still persists today, and so that's one thing that the Christian universalist approach has to contend with, that the transactional approach does not have to contend with. So, as a Christian universalist taking an inclusive approach, I will have to ultimately deal with my own set of problems as well, and I will. But I wanted to be sure that I didn't make it sound like the transactional approach has all of these problems, while the inclusive approach doesn't have any. So, transactionalism has its problems, but it also has its strengths. So, it is understandable why it is still so prevalent today. All right, well, that's enough, I believe, for us to cover in this episode. Next time, we will look at the exclusive approach to grace and investigate its strengths and weaknesses. But when it comes down to the final analysis, I still believe that an inclusive approach to grace like that of Christian universalism is the best one and I invite you to join me in that spiritual path. Because the problems of Christian universalism are dealt with much more easily than the problems generated by the other approaches. And the positives of Christian universalism far outweigh the positives of the other approaches. Because Christian universalism is the only approach to Christianity I can see where God's goodness is never in jeopardy and we get to affirm that grace is going to be God's way of finally reconciling and restoring everyone. And so, until next time, I invite you to join me in believing in a grace that saves
0: all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, Let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.